So we're beginning the period of Advent uh, this morning, and so for the next uh, uh, four weeks, we'll be looking at different aspects of the Advent story, the, Christ, the, the Christmas story. Um, Christians celebrate uh, the Christmas holiday in honor of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning and in the succeeding weeks, we want to begin with where does the Christmas story begin? Typically, we begin it in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 um, at the actual birth of Jesus Christ. Um, but this morning, I'd like to uh, read uh, these two verses. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. These two verses here I'm just going to kind of use as an outline, uh, the different uh, clauses and phrases in that, um, that, that really do cover the main elements of the Christmas story. We want to begin in the beginning. Uh, where does the Christmas story begin? Where does the coming of Christ begin? And we have to start by understanding, and for, for this I'd like you to go to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We want to understand clearly that Jesus Christ existed before he was born. Now, none of us can say that. That's not really a statement that any other uh, person can make. But the birth of Jesus Christ was not the beginning of Jesus Christ. He existed long, long before. And the best verse to begin with is John chapter 1. And I'll just read uh, maybe the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we see in these first verses of the Gospel of John, this one identified as the Word. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. And then this all-important statement, the Word was God. And when, when we talk uh, uh, about these verses here in the beginning uh, of John's chapter, you notice Jesus was the one through whom all things came into existence. He is the Creator. So what that means is at the beginning of creation, he already existed. His coming to earth is identified in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. And so the word that existed from the very beginning, at a point in time, became flesh and came to earth. And that's the part of the Christmas story that we celebrate at Christmas time. The Word became flesh. But the pre-existence of Christ, spoken of in John chapter 1, is also referred to by Jesus in one of the last prayers that he prayed on earth in John 15, verse 5, where he prays to the Father and he says to the Father, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so we understand that this, 
this word that came to earth and took upon himself flesh shared God's glory, the glory of the Father in heaven before he came to earth. The advent of Christ is more than just the coming of the Son. It's also about the Father sending the Son. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And when you read about Jesus and the, and the things that Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he repeats it over and over and over again. That he didn't just come from heaven to earth. He was sent here by the Father. God sent his Son. In John 8, 42, I'll read these verses for you. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And Jesus makes this statement here, and essentially he says, I didn't come on my own. I didn't come by, uh, as a decision that I made by myself. The Father sent me. John 6:38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. John 16:28 I came forth from the Father and I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And so Jesus who existed from all eternity in a point in time came to earth, took upon himself flesh, went through the suffering of the cross, the resurrection from the dead the ascension back to heaven, the session at the right hand of God. And he returned back to the place of glory that he had before he came to earth. God sent his son. And again, looking at this verse here, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And as you look at just this Galatians 4.4, it kind of answers in part the question for us, why did God send his son? And why? There's two reasons in this uh, Galatians passage here. Two reasons are given as to why God the Father sent his son to come to earth. What are they? Do you need a hint? Redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The purpose of the Father sending the Son was to redeem people. Do you know what redeem means? I mean, we, do we, we don't typically use that word in everyday conversation. Redeem, Barry? To deem again. To deem again, to redeem, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> to deem again, redeem, redemption. It's a, a very... Yeah, it means to purchase. It, it's a word for purchase, to redeem, to purchase someone out from, in this case, slavery. Slavery. Yes, uh, Kelly? I, I love in, in Colossians, it's not clear, rescued. Rescued. 
redeemed. And, uh, Colossians 1.16, 1.13, you, what is it? Okay, let's look at that. It's a great verse. Colossians 1.13 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his... Yeah, let's look at that. That's such, a, that's such an awesome word. It's Colossians 1.13 And 1.14 contains our word, redemption. So, Colossians 1.13 Now, when I read this, identify who is he that's spoken of here. Colossians 1.13 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He, who's he? Think clearly now. Who's he? He is God who has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Jesus. Jesus has a kingdom. It is a kingdom into which we ourselves have been transferred. And we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. That's what we have been redeemed from. The domain of darkness. The domain of darkness versus the kingdom of his beloved son. Every man, woman, and child that is born into this world is born into this world in bondage. And it is a bondage, a bondage that we cannot escape by ourselves. It is a bondage that requires a redeemer, someone who will pay a price to set us free. And in the, in the history of discussions about this idea of redemption, who is the redemption paid to? Do we, is Satan paid so that we can be set free? And the answer to that is no. The bondage that we are, in, that we are bound to is the bondage of the flesh and our fallen nature. And it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that was the payment that set us free. That payment was made to the Father because it's under the Father's wrath that our judgment comes. And so the Father sends the Son to rescue us by his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we could be set free from the domain of darkness and ultimately from the wrath to come. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
If anyone hears my sayings, Jesus says, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The Father sent the Son to save the world. That's the purpose of his coming. And we know that. We've been through multiple Christmas services and stories. But it's important that we stop and really think deeply about what it all means. The timing of the coming of Christ to the earth, in Galatians 4.4, it says, when the fullness of the time came. And it speaks of a specific time there, known only to God the Father, a specific point in time at which the the Father would send the Son. This whole idea of timing, in Romans 5, 6, it, it talks about, for at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came to earth, went to the cross, the timing of all of that was exactly as God had determined it to be. The sending of the Son of God for the sins of mankind was according to God's planned timetable. And it is a plan that began in eternity. Peter, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, says this about Jesus. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He goes on to say in Acts 4, he says, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. A lot of times we get the impression that when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, and then they sinned, that at that point God set about to create a plan whereby man could be redeemed. The plan to redeem mankind began before the creation of the world. We can't understand it. It doesn't make logical sense necessarily. We don't understand how the mind of God works. But the reality of it is, our salvation that we enjoy today was planned by God in eternity past. Ephesians 1.4, not only was Christ coming and his death according to God's predetermined plan, so also was our redemption. Ephesians 1.4, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and by faith in the truth. 
2 Timothy 1.9. God is the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's not according to our works. It's according to God's own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And I'll just read, maybe there's a couple more. I'll just read the one in Revelation 13.10, where basically it says, in the last days, everybody is going to fall down and worship the Antichrist. With the exception, as I'll read here, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. All the way back in eternity past, God had set his eye on you and upon me. And our redemption, which took place at a point in time in our own personal lives, and at a point in time back 2,000 years ago, began long, long, long before that. It began in the heart of God before any of us even existed. Why did God send his son for our sin? 1 John 4, 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. By this the love of God was manifested. John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When you read these two verses and others like them, you can't help but notice God's love for us existed before he sent his son to us. His love for us began before we had done anything good or bad. And that's important to understand because there are still a lot of even Christians today who feel like God's love is somehow contingent upon their obedience or upon their um, uh, church attendance or Bible reading or those different kinds of important things that we do. But God's love was demonstrated for us while we were yet sinners. And God's love was extended to us from the very past ages of eternity. It was all a part of the plan and the purpose of God to redeem us for a greater purpose, for the glory of the name of his Son. God's love for us existed before he sent his son to us. It was the motivation for him sending his son. God knew when we would be created. God knew when we would be born. God knew when we would turn our hearts to Christ because God knows everything. He knew it all. And what we need to understand is that his love for us didn't come about because of something good that he saw in us. His love for us was a sovereign, gracious act of mercy and grace for the sake of the glory of his name. 
the measure of God's love. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. I'll come back to that word. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's love. It's not that we loved him, but he first loved us. And the evidence of his love is seen in the fact that he sent his son to be what is called the propitiation for our sins. Now propitiation is a word that's not used, I think it's used three times in the New Testament. It's one of those Latin words. But it's a word that has a very important meaning. It's a word that's used to describe the offering of a gift that turns away the wrath of one who is hostile to you. Propitiation. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he sent his son to pay the price, the price that was accepted by God the Father and that turned his wrath away from us. The wrath of God. It's not a very popular Christmas theme, but it's the whole purpose for the Christmas event taking place at all. Because we are a people who are born into sin, and as sinners, we come under the wrath of a righteous God. It's not God's wrath because he's, he's, he's got a bad temper or he's lost control. The wrath of God is simply the expression of his righteous holiness. With God, the rule of law exists. And it's his law. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what God did, God the Father sent God the Son who paid the price that resulted in turning away God's wrath from us. And God's wrath has now been turned away from us because it was paid for by Jesus on the cross. He became the object of God's wrath. Romans chapter 11 talks about how God has, it's either 9 or 11, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. We who are in Christ are vessels of mercy. We have been the recipients of God's mercy. We have been those who have and will escape the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a judgment that is coming. It's always spoken of as a future thing. God delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 John, no, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. There is going to come a time when all creation is going to stand before the Lord as their judge. And we who are in Christ will escape that. 
And this plan to redeem us from our sin was set in motion by God long, long, long before that Christ was born. We are a people who have been graciously redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so before Jesus left, with, uh, left the earth, he spent that last time with his disciples. And out of all of the things that Jesus did in his ministry on earth, he said, there's one thing I want you to remember after I leave. He says, I want you to remember my death. Because it's the death of Christ that has redeemed us from our sins that ultimately would have resulted in God's judgment. And you have to ask yourself, why was I saved and not this person over here? Or this person over here? And we get kind of upset with God about that. But instead of asking about, well, what about other people? We really need to be asking a more primary question. And that question is, why me? Why would I be a recipient of God's mercy? What is it about me that makes me so acceptable to God? What did I ever do that really deserves this? And we know the answer to that. We didn't do anything to deserve it. If we got what we deserved, we wouldn't like it. But instead, Christ got what we deserved. And in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, prophesying about the death of Christ, in Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 53, it says this about God. It says it pleased the Father to crush him. Think about that for a minute. The depth of the love of God that he would send his own son to come in the flesh and then on the cross, where Christ became sin, it says God was pleased to crush him. Isn't that incredible? This morning as we gather around the Lord's table here, I, I, want, us to, I want us to think about the word mercy. Mercy. Vessels of wrath who have now become vessels of mercy. Mercy. It's when a judge withholds from you the justice that is due your crime. That's God's mercy. And I, I just have a, a sense that 
as we get caught up in the trappings of the Christmas season with our children and our grandchildren that we will have a tendency to be distracted from that which really ought to bring a humble joy to our hearts. Why do kids like Christmas so much? Because they get stuff, right? And why do we like it? We're not kids. We got everything we need. Well, we like, we like giving things to our kids and our grandkids. Don't you like doing that, Heidi? And uh, the greatest gift that has ever been given was the gift of mercy and grace personified in the person of Jesus Christ, our greatest gift. Are we truly grateful for it? Do we truly, deeply appreciate what God has done for us who didn't deserve any of it?